Philippians chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 20 and 21 there before we jump over to Revelation chapter 21. Hear God's word. But our citizenship, it is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Then turn over to Revelation 21, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 there. This beautiful picture of the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth, heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Amen. It's a reason why Revelation was written. Revelation is the deep end of scriptural reading. If you ever dive into Revelation, you kind of, you read it like this with a furrowed brow most of the time going, what? What's, what? What? But it was written for a reason. And that reason is to speak to a particular people from a particular apostle, John, to a particular people facing specific challenges. The Apostle John, who is writing the book of Revelation, is writing to, in the late part, the very near the end of the first century, and in the not-too-distant future, from this point in which he is going to write, Emperor Domitian will begin what will become one of the most horrific and systematic persecutions of the Christians across the Roman Empire. It had indeed, in some form, there was already persecution pretty widespread. There's a reason why John, even when he wrote this book, was ostracized to an island. But what we see in Revelation is that John and God, through John, is preparing his people for what they need in order to endure this suffering. You see the great line in Revelation 4, where it talks about there being no trying or pain or mourning is appropriate for the original readers because they will enter into a season of unending, seemingly, experiencing life filled with death, mourning, crying, and pain that makes what ISIS has done look like nothing. And so John is giving a vision by God, through, by God for the church, and this vision is giving to Christians for this reason, to give them hope. That is the reason why Revelation is written, to give hope in a world in which you are constantly suffering and struggling hope is imminently, as we see here, if you understand why Revelation was written, it is imminently practical. It is earthy. It is living for us. You see, the ability, your ability to face up to today's challenges, today's sufferings, the time that you lose a job, when you stand in front of a casket that's this big, when you have the notes of a spouse who has walked out the door, That is when revelation becomes very earthy and very practical. When you are struggling with a sin that simply just doesn't seem to go away. 
that day after day you fought it year after year, their revelation becomes very, very practical. Tim Keller says this, hope is a future prospect, something so great and so good that it makes it possible to face the hardships, to face the dick of difficulties of today. It makes it possible to feel everything you do, even the greatest sacrifices, are meaningless, not pointless. Goes on to give an illustration. This is how hope functions and works in our life. And he tells the illustration about two men who go to work a job that is extreme, that is an awful job. It's 80 to 90 hours a week. Their other employees are terrible to them. They treat them like they're dumb. They look down on them. Their bosses are abusive and speak terrible to them. But he said each of these two men have a completely different perspective because one man has been promised that he will be paid $15,000 after one year of enduring this job. The other man has been promised $15 million. The man who is paid $15,000 eventually after a merely few days will just go, forget this, I don't need this. This isn't worth it. But the other man will stick it out. Why? Because what lies at the end? And this is what Revelation is giving us. Giving us a vision of the end, pointing us to look, helping us look forward, giving us, engaging our imaginations as it is definitely imaginative, Revelation is, in such a way that we can endure today. So what comes at the end? What comes at the end of life? Some of you just simply say heaven, but it's interesting that heaven is actually not the preferred term of the New Testament. We see heaven really not used all that often. More often we see the term eternal life used, or simply the term glory. At the end, there is glory, a glorious eternal life. And so what I want to look at today is two aspects of that glorious eternal life that we look forward to and that gives us hope even for today in today's challenges. Two main segments, sections I want to talk about this morning about why we can have hope today. And the first is this, is because after this life, we will get redeemed and glorious bodies. We will get redeemed and glorious bodies. We will have a body. The creed today, where we get to the last few statements of the creed, goes like this. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It is a body that we will get at the end of all days. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 that we read, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Romans 8, 23 says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's the great Johnny Cash song? Don't you love it? It has that great bass line in it. There ain't no grave that can hold my body down. No, there ain't no grave that can hold my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. No, there ain't no grave that can hold my body down. I've been listening to that song all week, and it gets you in your guts. It's such a good song. You see, our bodies and our souls were meant to be eternally intertwined. And while the intermediate state is lovely in the sense that our souls go to be with the Lord, there is something that is wanting even in our intermediate states. We long to have our souls and bodies brought back together. You see, all, all, all the scripture points to this, that these things are supposed to be together. That your soul can deeply affect your body and your body, what happens to your body, can affect your soul. Right? So David talks about this in Psalm 31.10 where he says, My strength fails because of my sin. And then he mentions a physical manifestation of it. Because of his struggles with sin, he says, My bones waste away. 
How many of you have woken up in the morning and your jaws feel tight because you grind your teeth all night because of the stress and anxiety that you don't give up to the Lord? It goes the opposite way, too. If you're under, if you've ever been sick for weeks on end, had the flu or something like that, eventually it begins to affect your soul in which God feels distant. It's like your soul gets darkened because of how your body is feeling. Souls and bodies were meant to be together, and we look forward one day when they will be intertwined perfectly once again as they were meant to be. This is what Job looks forward to. Job 19, verse 25, it says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. We are not going to be misty spirits running around, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So, we're going to have a redeemed and glorified body, perfect bodies, beautiful bodies. But what kind of body, what would that actually look like? It's hard. The Bible doesn't give us super great description necessarily of what that is, but it does give us a description. So, we are given, it says it in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, what kind of body we will have. Did you see it? Our citizenship is in heaven from we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is what we get at the end of all things. You will get a redeemed body, but it will be glorious because your body will be like Jesus' body. Jesus' body was the prototype. His post-resurrection glorious body gives us a, it's the first fruits of all that we will experience in the new, the new life. When he returns, the properties and qualities that were true of Jesus' body will be true of ours. And so what was his body like? Let me give you a couple descriptions this morning to help give you a picture and an image, some sense of what our bodies will be like in the coming age. First, we see that our bodies will be imperishable. Jesus goes up to heaven eternally. Your bodies will not fade. It's interesting here because the law of entropy and the way that we move, pretty much once you get, your body goes stronger until you're about 24, 25. I got bad news, 25-year-olds. It's all downhill from here. For the rest of your life, you're dying. It is very perishable, like spoiled milk. That's what our bodies are like. Literally, they stink when we die. That is the gross truth of it. But in heaven, the beauty of it is actually, when we go from imperishable, we will not perish. We will be everlasting. Nothing bad can happen to these bodies. There will be no pain any longer. And actually, there's a sense in which they will grow more and more glorious as eternity goes on because we will be in his glorious presence. Second, our bodies will be powerful and more than real on this earth is real. It's interesting, in, in post-resurrection time, when Jesus is, is running around and showing up at various times to his apostles, does he, just, does he knock on the door and then walk in? Does he ask permission? No, he simply goes through walls. And some of people would look at that and go, oh, they, even, even the disciples thought it, oh, he's a ghost. But then they realized that they could put their fingers in his wounds. He was real. So was he a ghost or was he real? The answer is he was real. What kind of real people can go through walls and through doors? The kind of people who are more real than walls and doors. This is the kind of bodies that we're going to have. We're going to move through physical things like walls and doors, like we move through water and through air. You think you're real now? You think you're physical now? In our glorious state, we will be powerful. We will be more real than real today. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his great book, The Great Divorce, is the people who have gone to, quote-unquote, have taken the bus to, to heaven, 
on the outer area, and even as they're walking towards the outer area, those who will reject heaven, when they get on the grass, it pokes them. It cuts them because the grass in heaven is more real than them, even their most real estate. This is what it'll be like for us. The third thing we see is our bodies will be without sin. Jesus was always without sin. But the beautiful thing for us, not only will we be without sin, but unlike even now, as we are becoming redeemed, as the Spirit of God is working and making new life inside of us, there will be a day in which we will not be able to sin. How many of you are really, really tired of fighting sin? Where you wake up every day, and you think about the failures of yesterday, and you go, I think I struggled with the same failure when I was 13, and now I'm 43. That's a long time to be fighting the same sin. Why are you still fighting that sin? Because indwelling sin within our flesh. We are being made new spiritually from the inside out. But there will be a day when one day when this flesh will be peeled back and we'll be given. This flesh will be renewed and redeemed in a glorious way so that we will not even be tempted anymore. No more temptation. When I think about no more temptation, you know what I think about? One of the other descriptions of heaven, which is this, rest. It will rest. The fight will be over. Fourth and finally, we see in Jesus' body is that it's recognizable but different. It is recognizable. We see Jesus, whenever he would show up with his disciples, at first they would, it would seem like a number of times they wouldn't, they wouldn't see him. They wouldn't recognize that it was him. And then he would do something and they would go, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. That's how it will be for us. See, you've been to your high school reunion You've had the opposite experience of this, possibly. My dad just had his 40th uh, high school reunion a couple weeks ago. Some of you haven't recognized people because of the perishable aspects. And you go, oh, you didn't look like this when you were 17. I barely recognized you. It will be the opposite in heaven in which you will go, is that you? Is that you? You, you look like this now? This is you, and, and it won't simply be like you when you're 18 and all of your physical prowess and your glory. It will be your body as you were always made to be. Where not a day of this broken world has had any effect on your body and on your flesh. So much so that this is the, such the truth that C.S. Lewis said that if we see somebody in glory, that we will be, as they, if we see someone today as how they will be in glory, we will be tempted to worship them. This is how beautiful we will be. It will be recognizable, but it will be better. Some of you love old things. Bill Fordham loves old things. He collects antiques. Many of you others collect antiques. This is the beautiful, beautiful truth of what God is doing. It's interesting. You're going to get a new body, but not a different body. It is the restoration of old antiques, but it is taking them back to an age beyond the one that you can't even remember that echoes back to the day before sin has entered into our lives. That's the beautiful truth of what we look forward to for our bodies. And this is a description that God gives, that one day we will be glorious and magnificent. We will be. Glorious and magnificent. That's what 1 Corinthians points to, that today we have perishable bodies, but one day we will have bodies of glory. And in Matthew 13, 43, Jesus describes us this way. He said, the righteous shall shine forth like the sun. That's a good day. Now, here's the question. How does that give us hope to live for today? How does the truth that your body, this broken, sin-filled, fleshly body, give us hope for today? Well, there's many applications you give there, but I'm going to simply want to give you one. It gives you hope to keep fighting sin today. 1 John 3, 23 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be 
has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see that? Paul is grounding the pursuit of holiness, of cleansing and purifying your life, not in saying, he's, he's in, in the what's, what we're going to be. He's not saying, well, listen, you're going to be perfect one day, so don't worry about it. You can do whatever you want. No, what he's saying is one day you will be absolutely perfect and pure, so therefore today strive for that. Why does that give us hope for today? Let me ask you this. How many of you pick, maybe picked up the car, guitar or a golf club at some point in your life and you gave it up because you, didn't, you weren't very good at it? I did that, both of them. Picked up the guitar, 16 years old, right? Had great visions. But after about six months, I realized I wasn't going to be Clapton or Hendrix. And so no more playing. How many, of you, how many of you would pick up golf if you knew one day you'd play like Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth to be more relevant to today? Because some of you can play like Tiger today. <laughs> What if, what if that was the vision that you had? That when you picked up and you began to do something, that you, act, you were guaranteed that you'd be Hendrix when you played the guitar. That's what your righteousness is like. See, we give up on things. This is the hope that we need when you have been struggling with the same sin for 30 years, when your mouth, as Ed talked about earlier, and we just ran, we just, oh, what? I've run my mouth again? I've looked at that again? 30 years, you can keep fighting, you can have hope, because what is it? He says, one day I will complete you, and you will be as glorious in your righteousness as Jesus, because we'll see him as he is. Here's the beautiful truth. All of life moves towards this. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, so do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Some of you are feeling the weight of your imperishable body. And it hurts. It hurts because your body is breaking down. Some of you felt the weight of the perishable body and you've lost children and you've lost spouses and you've lost parents. And what Paul says there is that in that, in that, God is making for you an eternal weight of glory in those things. So yes, take hope for today because one day his work on you will be complete and finished. So we will be a glorified people with glorified souls and beautiful bodies. But where will redeemed and glorified people live? Well, if your body and your soul is that perfect and that beautiful, it wouldn't do to live in a shabby place like this, would it? Or maybe it would. The second thing we see at the end of all things, the last days, is not only will we get redeemed and glorious bodies, is we will get a redeemed and glorious earth. Revelation 21. Read it again just to give you a picture of it. Then I saw a heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's weird. It's a city wearing a dress. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death. And he later on says, Behold, I am making all things new. Here's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. First two chapters tell us what it was like. It was beautiful and perfect. We walked with God. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. Their bodies were not broken. Their earth was glorious and beautiful. We had intimacy with God. He dwelled with them. Then there's chapter 3. 
through Revelation 20. That's the middle part of the story. In which everything goes away. Everything is broken. And the rest of the story is how is God going to redeem this broken world? And then you get in the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And what do you see in the last two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22? There's a repeat of all the images of Genesis 1 and 2. What do we see? It's a new heaven and a new earth. What happens in Genesis 1? A new heavens and a new earth is created. In the Garden of Eden, there's a river and there's a tree of life. In Genesis 22, we see that there's a river that runs through heaven and there's a, a tree of life that stands in the middle of it. In Genesis 2, 1 and 2, we have God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And what do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? God now dwells with his people again. The story has been reversed. It has, but it hasn't just simply been reversed. You know, we're not going back to Eden. We're going back to Eden as it was meant to be, as it expanded to the ends of the earth. Because it will not be some small little garden someplace in the Mesopotamian. It will be the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. That the garden that they were sought, were supposed to expand and make new, the whole world will be expanded perfectly and finally. Genesis 3 tells us the story of the curse. And what we see is that God in Revelation 21 and 22 is reversing the curse. He's reversing the story. All the bad things have been reversed. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, there's a beautiful story and a beautiful quote from Sam Gamgee, who's this little hobbit. And he finds out the great wizard Gandalf is not dead. And he cries out all of a sudden, is everything sad going to come untrue? That is the truth of the end of all things. You see, he's not making new things. He's making all, that are, all things that are here new. In other words, he's replaying all things back to make them fresh and new and redeemed and glorious. It's interesting the perspective of eternity that we will have as we will look back even on the worst sufferings as being the means of God's redemption in our life. And this is what he's going to do. In Romans 8, Paul pictures the created world. As one writer put it, the created world is standing on its tiptoes looking for God's redemption. Like a child waiting for a parade to start. And when John said that God is, making, God is giving us and making us a new heaven and a new earth, he is writing about the liberation, the transformation of this world. When all the vestiges of corruption, of injustice, of uncleanliness, of brokenness will be washed away and everything will be made new once again. Now here, why should this give us hope? Perhaps it's clear. For those of you, perhaps it's not clear. We can have hope for today. Not just simply looking forward, but today, for what we do today, because of what is going on here, because this process of making all things new has already started. Revelation chapter 21, it says, there will be, there will be, there will be. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, it says, behold, I am making. It goes from future tense, from what's called the perfect tense, in which it is current and ongoing and future. Which means when he says that I am making all things new, it has already started. That's what Jesus came to do. In the same way, we also see the same truth in Philippians 3, where it says our citizenship is in heaven, present, right now. But then he says, we will be. Here's, let me give you a theological ism. It's called the already and not yet. Not yet. The already and the not yet. 
You see, what Jesus came to do is he came to establish for himself a foothold for him and his kingdom in this world, and he establishes it through his church. And what we see for the rest of history is it'll be God's kingdom spreading and making itself known and becoming visible as the church moves forth, as the gospel is proclaimed. That is the already, but there is the not yet. And then many of these promises, we only get a foretaste. We get a slight morsel of what's going to be coming. But one day, all things will be made new. Right now, just a few things are tweaked, are changed, are made slightly new. But one day, everything will be perfect as it ought to be. Ephesians 1 said, our salvation now is merely a deposit for our inheritance that we're going to experience in the future. Now, this is important for theology and making us very practical people who are for both hopeful, who are rightly optimistic, but also rightly have a right view, a pessimistic view, a right pessimism about this world. You see, there are those who are overly optimistic about the Christian life even for today. This is called an over-realized eschatology, where they bring the promises and the truths of the future and they apply them to today. Let me give you an example of this. There's this group called the Health and Wealth Gospel Preachers. And often what they do is they promise you, if you will obey God, then he will give you this, 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 and this. And often what they do is they point to the promises that are only going to be true in the future and they apply them to today. Hey, if you will do this, then you will be a king on this earth today. That's not the truth. We will continue to suffer. The gospel goes forth like Jesus' gospel went forth through suffering of his church, laying down their lives, therefore making the kingdom visible. That's an overly optimistic view of today, but also we have Christians who are often too pessimistic as well, in which they have what we call an under-realized eschatology, in which they haven't applied the truths of the future enough to today and the fullness of the benefits to today. The other problem is here is what they do is they don't think of anything. They don't think it has, applies at all to the present day life. There is no hope for them. Nothing can change. We can do nothing good in this world other we try to save a few people from hell and then we just try to get away from this world as best we can. That's their perspective. We move away from the cities and we move away from people and we just try to cling on for dear life. We don't, our work has nothing to do with the kingdom that is coming. The only thing, it's just church and me and my family, and that's it. But these people, perhaps, perhaps they're, as John Lennon said, they're too heavenly-minded, and therefore they're no good here on earth. Because all they think about is the future. But actually, if you understand the Christian theology rightly and apply its hope for today, it's quite the opposite. John Lennon says this in his, in his song, Imagine. He said, imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us. No hell below us, and above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's an overrealized eschatology. Saying we should just simply live for today. But this is actually quite the opposite for the Christian understanding, because there will be a heaven where we will reside, and we have reason to work and to care for this world and to build beautiful things here to work for God's kingdom here and now because it is a part of the making all things new for the future. Here's the, let's apply it back to us personally. Your Christian life, growing in sanctification. You're going to be made perfect. All things in your life will be made new one day. The perspective of many Christians for, in regards to the earth is, listen, it's all going to burn up, so let's just, we, our buildings, let's just get them up as fast as possible. Let's not care about the earth. It's all just going to be burned up. Well, if you take the same perspective with your Christian life and you go, listen, God's going to save me in the end. He's going to sanctify me perfectly. Then we might as well not strive for holiness. 
Listen, we should care for this world. We should build beautiful buildings. We should draw beautiful pieces of art. We should engage in engineering and architecture and homeschooling our children and teaching them wonderful things and teaching in the public school system because God is making all things new even now. It may look like we're going in inches and one day it will run in leaps and bounds when he returns, but we get to be a part of his transformational work today. This is what Bono looks forward to. Do you long for this day? You know the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for? It makes Christians go crazy because they think he's talking about Jesus. And they go, I still, like, he talks about all these experiences kind of the Christian life, and then he goes, oh, I haven't, still haven't found what I'm looking for. But he's not talking about Jesus. In the sense that he has, he's already experienced the salvation of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, but he's looking forward to the day when the kingdom will be made new entirely, when God's kingdom will be consummated fully here on earth. What's he say? I look forward to the day for that. He's still longing for it. You see, we live, we live in this time when it's the all, between the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has been established on this earth, but it is not fully consummated. It is not fulfilled. And we live, in that, we live in that time period where we go, I've experienced this. As Bono said, I've run to the highest of mountains and I've seen the beautiful buildings and I see all that God is doing in this world, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the truth for the Christian. We've experienced something of God's salvation, but we look forward to a fuller experience of it one day. And when will that experience come? When God comes to dwell with us. See, the earth will be glorious. And this is the second thing I want you to see about the earth. Is the earth will be glorious because God will be here. I heard my dad talk about this a couple months back. He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's interesting. You ever read the Sermon on the Mount? The meek there, it says that they'll inherit the earth. Well, that's a raw deal for the meek, isn't it? If, it's all good, if the earth is simply going to burn up at the end, or simply all they get is this broken world, they got to be going, listen, what about the poor in spirit? They get the kingdom of heaven. Why do I get this crummy earth that's just going to burn up at the end of all things? Clearly, there's something else that's going to happen. The answer is found in the doctrine of the new earth. You see, what's going to happen, what we see in Revelation 21, is in the end of all things, there will be no distinction between heaven and earth. There will be simply eternal life. And there will be no distinction between heaven and earth because heaven is defined as the fullness of God's presence. And what does it say in Revelation 21? That heaven's going to come down, it's going to break in, and God will dwell with his people. That's the truth of it. The major difference, it's not simply that everything in this earth will be great and you won't get hurt, you won't be broken in this earth where there won't be hurricanes or tornadoes, but the major difference is this, is that we will dwell with God perfectly and finally. This is the longing of all Christians throughout the scriptures. What did Adam and Eve lose in the garden? The very presence of God. Yes, they lost life eternal. Yes, they lost, they lost all these wonderful blessings and physical blessings. But more importantly than all that, the reason why they lost all those things is because they lost God himself. And in the end of all things, what we get once again is we get the God of glory. That's what we are restored to. And the best thing about this world is to know him. That's what we will have. Your sin will not keep you from knowing him rightly. Nothing will be able to keep you. You will see him. You'll be given a glorious body so you can see him perfectly and rightly, and your body will not burn up in his presence. And what is God going to come do? It's interesting. This tells us and why this gives us hope for today. What is Jesus going to come do? What is he going to do when he returns to this world? He's going to reign. He's going to rule on a throne, and this tells us about our occupation. Because the presence of God is reigning, and we will, what we see is, what we're going to do, what are you going to do in heaven? Are, are you just going to worship? Well, yes, we, of course we will worship. 
But does that mean we are simply going to have an eternal song time together in which an angel, an angel is going to be up on a screen or bouncing up on words like the old Mickey Mouse ears, and that's what we're going to do for all of eternity? Is that what it's going to be? Listen, some of you, that's what you're going to do because that's how God has gifted you. And so you're going to play strings and you're going to play lyres and you're going to play pianos and you're going to sing so the rest of us can live our whole life in the days in which you guys who can sing have beautiful presence and God's, and God's presence can sing wonderfully. So that's the background music to our life. But the rest of us will do what we're created to do, which is to work. But more than that, we will rule. That's what we will do. That will be your heavenly occupation. You will reign, you will rule. Not as the Mormons say, as the Mormons are the Jehovah's Witnesses. We won't get our own planet. It will be this planet, this earth, that we will rule over this earth with God on high. You don't believe me? Here's a number of passages on this that how, showing how we will reign with God. 2 Timothy 10-12 through 12 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Again, endurance and hope. That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal weight of glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my heavenly father on his throne. Therefore, these passages in Revelation about the one who conquers is not simply Jesus, it's you and me. Because there in Revelation 3.21, it says that Jesus sat down on the throne already and we get to sit on the throne like he has. We will sit on thrones and we will reign over the earth. And one final one, Revelation 22, 4 and 5. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. And they will need no light or sun, a light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is your heavenly occupation. To be a kingdom of priests and kings of rulers over the worlds. And indeed, this is what we're going back to, our original occupation. Who did God put in charge of this world? Adam and Eve. To name, to have dominion and dynasty over this world. And we'll go back to this place where we will rule all things. All things will be restored and we put back in this place. How do we know that man will rule over the earth, though? How do we know? What's the guarantee of this? How do we know we have this inheritance? There's a great picture in Revelation 5. Bear with me, this is a little bit longer. Coming towards the close. Revelation 5 gives this beautiful picture. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Here's what's happening. This is a legal scene, which is the end of all things. What happens at the end of life? Someone reads your will and your testament. So that's what the angel is wanting to do. That's what's going on in Revelation 5. And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So here's the inheritance. He's going to read the will. It's this beautiful, beautiful manuscript to talk about how we are going to be kings and priests and all things are going to be beautiful. And we're going to inherit this earth. And yet nobody can open the will. No one. But then it says this. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. No one on the earth can open the scroll. But look, he is here. And in what we see all through Revelation is that Jesus 
is the lion and the lamb. This is the image constantly given for him. The tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, in between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why, are we, why can we reign? Why does Jesus even get to reign? Because he was slain. Because he came, as it says in the New Testament, he came to put under his feet all rulers and principalities and authorities in this world. And so does this give you hope? How do you get this hope? Three words I'm going to give you this morning. First, you've got to imagine. Imagine. And not that terrible song from a couple years ago. Imagine. Use your imagination. Therefore, you should read people like Tolkien and Lewis because they dedicated their whole life to this. Imagining. Have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia series? That last book, The Last Battle, the whole last couple chapters, I just cried through it. It is unbelievable. My great image for Nathan. Nathan's got that beautiful, long, flowing hair. I think Nathan's going to be a centaur in heaven. (laughs) His legs don't work, but he will have legs that are powerful beyond your imagination one day. And when Jesus returns, like the scene in the last battle, in which it says that people ran across a field towards the coming lion, who was coming in all his glory, that they ran like horses stampeding. That will be the day. You've got to read stuff like that and you've got to start imagining. Because you need it for today when things are tough and things are difficult. Sam Gamgee did the same thing, right? Lord of the Rings, one more time. He and Frodo are walking up Mount Doom and they have given up all hope. Absolute and utter darkness. They have no more energy and no more hope is left within them. And then all of a sudden it says this. They are peeping among the dark clouds. Sam looked up in the mountains and Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked out at the forsaken lamb, hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This is the perspective of the scriptures, that death is merely a shadow, that all your suffering is merely a shadow, and what lies beyond it is the twinkling stars of the glory of God, and that glory awaits us as well. Could you imagine these things? So you got to imagine. Then you got to believe. Could you believe? This whole series has been about belief. Apostles' Creed starts with this. I believe. I believe. See, the creed is not simply a bunch of doctrines. I hope that I've been able to bring that out over the last 16, 17 weeks. This is very practical. These doctrines that we have gone over is the heart of of your Christian life? Do you believe and trust in these things? If you do, it will radically affect your life. And then last word that you need to say, you imagine, you need to believe, and the last thing you need to say, amen. How does the Apostles' Creed end? 
believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Amen. Which means, let it be done. So Christian, could you say that? Could you get into the God's word and could you imagine, could you let your mind run for a while and think about the future? Could you then believe about a world in which you no longer live with a husband who doesn't love you? Could you live and believe about a world in which your child has not been taken from you? Could you believe there exists a world? Could you imagine a world in which you go to work every day and you love it? Because it's lived to the glory of God. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you don't believe this, I would invite, could you please imagine? Could you say amen? Don't you want, listen, even if you don't believe, wouldn't you want a world like this to exist? That there was actually a God who created all things perfectly. He made you in his image. That even though we ran from him, that he came after us and he died in order to break you his, to make you his son and his daughter, who forgave your sins and who now promises to make all things new in your life. Could you believe that? I hope and pray that you do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I think of the book, and I'm not, I'm not sure I even remember what the book is. But it's entitled, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Lord, I, I pray that phrase over us. That, Lord, you would get us out of the doldrums. You would take our eyes off the things of this world. And you would give us a vision of the future that gives us a living hope a alive hope for today. That you would make our hearts sing with an imagination of what things will be, behold and be, be, wait for us at the end of all times. Gracious God, we thank you for the cross that has made it all possible. That there was a lamb who was worthy to open the scroll. Who by his blood has made it possible for us to enter in his kingdom. Who has called us and beckoned us to now be about his kingdom and making it visible in this world, and who promises to come and make all things new. Yes, Lord, we say amen to that. May it be done. May you reign over the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.